Support for Nova Now comes from the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, dedicated to providing compassionate care and cancer specialists who are experienced in the cancer you have. When you hear the word cancer, their team is ready. Learn more at massgeneral.org cancer. Hey, listeners, Alok here. We wanted to share the first episode of a thrilling three-part documentary miniseries from our friends at Masterpiece, Making Masterpiece which tells the whole story of how a scrappy group of public media producers in Boston created the home for British drama on American TV. Listen here and subscribe to Masterpiece Studio to hear the rest of the miniseries. When you ask people what their favorite Masterpiece Theater program is, one title comes up again and again and again. You've probably heard of it. It's a show set in the early 1900s about a wealthy English family and the common people who serve them. And it has everything you'd want in a good TV show. Amazing acting, beautiful costumes, lavish sets. You probably think I'm talking about Downton Abbey, but I'm not. I'm talking about Upstairs Downstairs. In 1974, Upstairs Downstairs premiered on Masterpiece Theatre and was practically an overnight sensation. The New York Times claimed... If you missed Sunday evening's first episode of Upstairs Downstairs, you shouldn't have. By the time the second season aired, it was the kind of show that everybody was talking about. I grew up in one of those homes where Masterpiece was my parents' idea of the only TV that existed. My granny, who lived in a little cottage in the back garden, would come up once a week and we would watch Upstairs Downstairs when I was a kid. And that was a, that was a special occasion for us. Upstairs, Downstairs was a phenomenon. There's something about that picture that made me want to be an actress. But it seemed such a big leap for me to project that I would ever be in a show like that. This is Academy Award-nominated actor Elizabeth McGovern. Recently, she's perhaps best known for her role as Cora Crawley, Countess of Grantham on Masterpieces Downton Abbey. Of course, McGovern did end up acting in a show like Upstairs, Downstairs. Downton is also about a wealthy family and the people who serve them. Upstairs, Downstairs inspired Downton. It inspired so much television, which we'll get into later in this episode. And it also put Masterpiece Theater on the map. It made Masterpiece Theater must-watch TV and kept people tuning in season after season. Since it aired, Masterpiece Theatre has been home to more than 400 different series, starring some of the most famous actors of all time, a few of whom we'll talk to in this podcast. Who are you and what do you do? Oh, this is good. I love these kinds of questions. Um, I'm Lily Collins, a constant optimist. Well, my name is Rufus Sewell. Beyond that, the details at present are fuzzy. I'm Alan Cumming. I'm Robin Ellis. I am Crystal Clark. My name is Laura Linney, and I'm an actress. Uh, My name is Hugh Bonneville. I'm an actor. But this podcast isn't just about the actors. It's about great television and what it takes to make it. It's about the ups and downs of showbiz and the surprisingly juicy behind-the-scenes drama of public television. It's about 50 years of masterpiece history. I'm Jay Slaycob, and this is Making Masterpiece, a special miniseries from Masterpiece Studio. We're covering five decades of Masterpiece history in three episodes. 
where Masterpiece Theater came from, how it changed television, and what it still has in store for its 50th season. Episode 1, The Beginning. Fifty years of history, that's a lot of ground for one podcast to cover. Where do we even start? Well, how about we start with the woman who is in charge of Masterpiece Theater for most of those years? First question is, uh, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> Pretend I don't know you. Oh, okay. So I am Rebecca Eaton. I was the executive producer of Masterpiece for, oh, 30-something years. For 35 years, Rebecca Eaton was the executive producer of Masterpiece until Suzanne Simpson took over for her in 2019. I don't get a lot of sleep doing this job, but I feel like I've been handed a gift and that my job is to make sure that Masterpiece is still looked at as one of the best and most important television shows on the schedule, not only at PBS, but in the industry. You're going to hear from Simpson and Eaton a lot over these next three episodes. After all, the EP plays a huge role in making Masterpiece the series it is. But right now, I want to take you back to a time pre-Masterpiece, way before Eaton, Simpson, or anyone was executive producer. We're talking about the late 1950s, early 60s. American television was simpler back then. Much, much simpler. In fact, if you owned a TV, you probably had access to just three networks. ABC, NBC, and CBS. It was hard for others to compete with the big three. That was where the hit commercial series lived. Shows like Gunsmoke, The Beverly Hillbillies, Dragnet, Green Acres, um, sitcoms, you know, kind of silly, fun, clever, light. Another silly, fun, light series from the time? My Mother the Car, an actual show about a woman who dies and comes back to life as a vintage jalopy. It wasn't what you'd call a critically acclaimed hit. When television is good, nothing, not the theater, not the magazines or newspapers, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse. This is Newton Minow, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, speaking at the May 1961 meeting of the National Association of Broadcasters. This annual meeting was, and still is, a huge deal for broadcasters. So to gather with the best of the best in your industry and then have someone tell you off, it was a bit of a downer. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air. And stay there. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. Was it a vast wasteland? Man, that's harsh. Soraya Nadia McDonald is a culture critic for ESPN's The Undefeated. She spent a lot of her career watching, thinking, and writing about TV, especially how it's changed over time. I don't know if I would say vast wasteland, but it was certainly... There's a lot of forgettable stuff. <laughs> the shows that aired in the 1960s weren't bad, necessarily. But Gunsmoke, Beverly Hillbillies, Bonanza, people really enjoyed watching them. 
So of course, when Minnow got up and called television a vast wasteland, it was like a slap in the face to all of the TV executives in the room. I remember very clearly, I was still standing on the uh, speaking platform. This is the man himself, Newton Minow, talking to us more than 60 years later. And people were coming up, and one man came up, and he said, that was really not a very good speech. So I said, thank you very much. About three minutes later, he came back. He says, I think about it, it was a terrible speech. Clearly, some executives in the audience didn't like what the FCC chairman had to say. But television viewers actually agreed with him. After the speech, Minow's office received scores of letters thanking him for what he said. The FCC got more letters in support than it ever in its history. And I knew that that I wasn't working for the broadcasters, I was working for the viewers. Minow didn't really care who he offended. He just wanted TV to be better, to live up to its potential. And people in the industry did listen. They gave us smart shows like The Firing Line, The Mod Squad, and in 1969, The Foresight Saga. The Foresight Saga was prestige catnip. It told the story of the Foresight family, mainly the vile Soames Foresight and his lifelong battle to control his beautiful distant wife, Irene. You could call it the Downton Abbey of the early Nixon years, and audiences ate it up. First, it aired in the UK on the BBC. It aired on Sunday evenings, so this meant that pubs shut down in England um, and church vespers actually had to be rescheduled to accommodate viewers who um, were more addicted to television at the time than they were to going to church. Nancy West wrote the definitive book on Masterpiece's history called Masterpiece, America's 50-Year-Old Love Affair with British Television Drama. So there was no way we were making this podcast without talking to her. The Foresight Saga was an event. It was one of the first major, if not the major, television events. And it was a national and international phenomenon. After it aired in the UK, Foresight made its way onto television in the States and was just as massively popular over here. At its peak, as many as 14 million people were watching. It was huge. There was no competition for this kind of thing, but it had kind of come out of the blue and everybody showed up to watch it. That's the thing about Foresight. Its success, especially in the United States, was surprising. Because ABC, CBS, and NBC didn't want it. They thought that it was in black and white, it was period drama, it was British. Nobody in America would want to watch it. So Foresight found a home at NET, National Educational Television. NET wasn't a commercial network. It was an educational network, a group of nonprofit television stations centered around colleges and universities, a little like PBS before there was such a thing. So I imagine other executives were probably kicking themselves after it did air to such success. Kicking themselves or looking for other jobs, because they might very well have been fired (laughs) if they passed on Foresight Saga. If you're thinking Sunday nights, British drama, airing on educational TV, sounds a bit like Masterpiece Theater, great, you've picked up on my less than subtle foreshadowing. I would say the Foresight Saga was, to use a baking term, 
the starter of Masterpiece Theater. Without Foresight, Masterpiece Theater probably wouldn't exist today. That's because the Foresight saga proved that imported British programming could do well on American television, really well. And so when producers over at WGBH, a public television station in Boston, saw how successful Foresight had been, they decided to experiment themselves with imported British drama. Now, who exactly jumped on a WGBH is a little hard to determine because, you know, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan. And there are a lot of people who would claim to be the fathers. It is true. They were all men at that time. Christopher Sarson, who is a television producer at WGBH, is one of those fathers. That of course I thought that I came up with it. Of course Stan thought he came up with it. Stan here is Stanford Calderwood. Calderwood had left his job as an executive at the Polaroid Corporation in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to become the president of WGBH in the summer of 1970. By that time, WGBH had already joined the brand new Public Broadcasting Service, or PBS. And he had already brought uh, Julia Child to public television. So he was very television savvy and very interested in television. Calderwood and Sarson each claimed to have had the idea to import British drama first. I mean, it is possible that they both had the idea at the exact same time. But they did eventually come together to make it happen. As all good stories go, this one starts with Stan Calderwood and his wife on vacation. He and I think his wife went to England, began to talk to the BBC, and discovered there were literally shelves and shelves and rooms full of videotapes of other programs like the Foresight that the BBC and the British broadcasters had done. Calderwood was floored, and before he left the UK, he pitched the BBC a novel idea. Wasn't it a shame that all of these programs were just going to sit here in these rooms gathering dust? What if GBH were to buy the programs and broadcast them for their new national PBS audience in the States? The folks at the BBC said, sure. And then they set the price, $10,000 per hour of programming, which was actually an incredible deal. Star Trek, which came out around that same time, cost around $200,000 per hour to make. Calderwood was excited, and he headed home to pitch his big British idea. There wasn't a reaction to the program. It was, get it funded. All that summer, that's exactly what Calderwood tried to do. He just had to find one or two sponsors who wanted to support the series. He thought, it shouldn't be too hard. After all, Calderwood had come to WGBH directly from the corner offices of corporate America. He had a Rolodex full of contacts, and he knew how to make a sale. But corporate America wasn't buying. And I think he visited at least 20 or 25 different corporations. But he finally found an entree at mobile. As in mobile oil, known today as ExxonMobil. Henry Becton, speaking here, was a producer at WGBH during this time. And so he got an interview with Herb Schmertz. Herb Schmertz was Mobile Oil's vice president of public affairs. And Herb liked the idea. Sadly, both Calderwood and Schmertz have died, so we can't ask either one of them to tell us what happened on that fateful phone call. But here's how I imagine the call went down. Calderwood pitched Schmertz his idea. 
He wanted to make a series that would air on PBS and showcase British drama. Programs like The Foresight Saga. Schmertz hadn't been watching The Foresight Saga, at least according to a 1986 New York Magazine profile of the publicist. But it didn't matter. On the call, Schmertz said that The Foresight Saga was one of his favorite shows. Herb Schmertz was a very smart guy who understood marketing instinctively. And he understood that a high-class British drama series on public television was exactly what his oil company needed because his oil company needed its name to be burnished. They wanted to be the classy oil company, uh, not so much to sell gas at the local pump, but in Washington to impress the policymakers, the movers and shakers. After reaching out to several dozen companies and failing to get anyone to care, Calderwood had finally found his white whale. Mobile Oil agreed to be the program's sole sponsor and give them all the money they needed. For their part, Mobile got a public-facing, sexy new way of elevating their brand name. Money in hand, Calderwood and his team at WGBH could go about making their very British miniseries. The idea was that they would air the very best of British drama in an anthology fashion. American viewers would get the cream of the crop of serialized costume drama in the same place, at the same time, every week. This was to be appointment viewing, something big and new and utterly unique. But what was Sarson, by now the executive producer of the series, going to call this new creation? Chris Sarson uh, liked the idea of, of just the simple word episode as the title for the series. I remember reading that I came up with the title episode. Uh, I hope that's not true, but because it's such a lousy title. They obviously did not go with episode. Instead, they picked Masterpiece Theater. Mobile Schmertz had especially liked the alliteration of mobile and masterpiece. I think my only contribution, uh, <laughs> um, which was a minority opinion, was that theater should be spelt T-R-E instead of T-E-R. And uh, Herb Schmertz in particular didn't like that idea. He thought it was pretentious. And I said, no, it's not pretentious, it's British. A very British name for a very British series. For the theme song, however, Sarson picked the rondeau from Symphonies and Fanfares for the King's Supper by Jean-Joseph Moray, a French song. Picture the scene. It's 1962, and my first wife and I um, decided to go on a Club Med uh, holiday. And when we got to Sicily, we were all placed in little huts on the beach, and the waves washed us to sleep in the evening and washed us awake in the morning. I mean, is this bliss? To summon us to eat was... Was this music? That's nine years before Masterpiece Theatre came up. And as soon as it did come up, this damn tune came into my head. And it was crazy because it was a piece of French music. And no way could I put a piece of French music to this oh so English series. It had to have English music. But as much as Sarson tried to find a proper English replacement, he just couldn't. So the King's Supper stuck. I was naughty, actually. I didn't tell people who it was. 
until uh, Michael Rice, the uh, program manager, dragged it out of me because I hadn't got rights for it. At this point, it was autumn 1970. Masterpiece Theatre was supposed to premiere on PBS on January 10th, 1971. And Sarson and his crew still hadn't picked the BBC programs they were going to air. So they flew to London to sample from the dramatic buffet. We had to sit in a little room with a television set and say, roll tape, and they roll tape, and we watched episode one. Roll tape, and they watched episode two. Sarson, Calderwood, and their team screened dozens of shows until they'd found 39 hours of programming they hoped would land with their American audience. But there was still one essential ingredient Masterpiece Theatre was missing. I said, we have to have a host. I said, because if we get the right host, people will tune in. They will tune in not to see the new programme because they don't know the new programme from a ball of wax. They will tune in to see what this erudite, lovely, gorgeous host that they've fallen in love with, what he finds interesting. There was an educational element baked into the idea of a host, too. This was public television, after all. The producers rightly felt that they needed a host who could not only entertain, but serve to um, kind of translate some of the historical and cultural material to Americans. Give them a history lesson, in a sense, and do it in about 30 seconds to no more than four or five minutes. The producers needed someone who was part teacher, part entertainer, someone who was comfortable on screen and someone who could be an authority on, well, Britishness. One person came to Sarson's mind, the legendary British-American journalist, Alistair Cook. He was always getting offers to do television commercials of any kind. He refused. This is Susan Cook Kittredge, Alistair Cook's daughter. I remember he came in one time with an offer and held it up and said, this would be one year of college for you if I accepted this, but he never did. Sarson was convinced that Cook would be the perfect host for Masterpiece Theatre. But when Sarson offered him the job, Cook very politely declined. Well, kind of. Cook actually gave Sarson a list of other names he thought would be good at the job. But when Sarson went to look them up, he discovered that they were all dead. So Sarson went back to zero. He did some research, interviewed a bunch of other possibilities. And on December the 1st, we still didn't have a host. This was one month until Masterpiece Theatre was scheduled to air. Sarson was panicking. While he and his small team were busy throwing together wildly expensive visual introductions for the series in lieu of having a host, the phone rang in their Boston office. It was Alistair Cook. I just had Thanksgiving with my daughter, he said, and she persuaded me that I should do Masterpiece Theatre. He wasn't always receptive to other people's suggestions, um, but he did call Christopher Sarson back. He said, I know you've got somebody else by now, but uh, I just wanted you to know that um, she and you were right and I was wrong. I should have said yes. Of course, what Cook didn't know was that they hadn't actually found another host. And Sarson was delighted and relieved to offer him the job a second time. So with money, title, theme song, and host firmly in place, on January 10th, 1971, Masterpiece Theatre premiered. King's Supper Played 
the Masterpiece Theatre title card settled on the screen and Mobile staked their claim. Masterpiece Theatre is made possible by a grant from Mobile Corporation, which invites you to join with them in supporting your local public television station. Since Cook refused to do commercials, it fell to executive producer Sarson, a fellow Brit, to read the corporate messaging, a job he maintained for nearly 30 years. And then, after all that was out of the way, we saw Alistair Cook sitting in an antique chair next to a pile of finely bound books. Good evening. I'm Alistair Cook. We open tonight a new television theater, which in the next year will show you plays adapted from the works of Balzac, Henry James, Dostoevsky. Tonight, we show you the first of 12 episodes about a great name in English history. Now, all of us know, and those of us who... The first program broadcast on Masterpiece Theatre was, appropriately, the first Churchills. Well, Mr. Churchill? Mistress Jennings, your servant. Uh, this, This matter of importance... Oh, yes. Upon my soul, you're the prettiest boy I ever saw in my life. Is that all you were to tell me? That and a hundred other things. And for all the time and work that went into making the Masterpiece Theatre premiere a success, the first Churchills had some problems. Alistair Cook thought it was so bad that he thought there would never be a second season of Masterpiece. He thought it was a dud. The script was a bit of a mess. Uh, There were too many figures, too many people named Thomas. Um, The wigs all looked identical. There is more hair in this show than in anything we've ever done since. They were, you know, tremendous. Everybody had wigs, the men and the women. Even Sarson, the man who'd picked it, didn't like it. I thought it was pretty lousy, but I thought it was right to open the series. And Sarson was right. America loved it. PBS headquarters was inundated with thank you notes from fans. Critics gushed over the scripts and the acting. It didn't matter that the first Churchills wasn't a very good show. What mattered was the idea behind Masterpiece Theater. Ultimately, the first Churchills was new and different to the stuff they were used to watching. Nobody else was doing what Masterpiece Theatre was doing. Um, It was an anthology program. It offered a variety of different series, some of them comedies, some of them tragedies, some new and contemporary, some classic adaptations. There still isn't another Masterpiece Theatre. Not even Britain has it. Masterpiece Theatre was unique. It was both entertaining and educational. Drama with an edge. And people like that about it. I I felt television could uplift. That television should always be trying to teach, to entertain, uh, to stimulate. And Masterpiece Theatre fills an essential role by giving the viewer the opportunity to see great drama. This is, of course, Newton Minow. You remember Minow. He's the one who called television a vast wasteland about 10 years before the first Churchills aired. Masterpiece Theater was exactly the kind of series Minow had in mind when he challenged his audience to make better TV. I was hooked on it. 
So Sundays at 9 p.m., Minnow, along with millions of other Americans, began a new, very British habit. I think there are hardly any masterpiece theaters through the years that I didn't watch. And we'll get to more of those masterpiece theaters, the good, the bad, and the poldark, right after a quick break. Masterpiece Theater first aired on PBS in January 1971. It was an exciting new concept for American audiences. But back in Britain, costume drama was already a popular established genre. It was a goldmine. It was really was a goldmine of, of stuff. Churning it out we were, and, and uh, it finally ended up uh, on, on the American circuit, which was great. Great for the, for the audience in the States and great for English actors as well. Robin Ellis is a Masterpiece regular. In 1972, he starred in Masterpiece Theatre's Elizabeth R. Well, to be honest, it was fantastic because I was working with probably the most famous actress in the world, uh, Glenda Jackson. So uh, I was extremely privileged. And there I found myself all decked out in my finery, dancing a pavan with her. I was wearing a pair of false uh, calves, actually, because my, my legs were not exactly Tudor legs. Basically, the form-fitting tights of the Tudor court called for slightly more pronounced calves than Ellis had. And while Ellis had to wear fake calves to play the Earl of Essex, Jackson actually had to shave back her hair to play Queen Elizabeth. At least I had a bit more of the kind of forehead that she had. Would that I had her intelligence. That any of us did. I mean, <laughs> I would make that bargain. We spoke to both Ellis and Jackson about what it was like to work on Elizabeth R. It was a fantastic experience. Did you feel at the time that this would go on to become an internationally celebrated production? No, not at all. I mean, I just couldn't believe that I had seven months' work. It was just amazing. <laughs> Elizabeth R. ended up winning Masterpiece Theatre five Emmys. It was actually the first international show to win an Emmy for Best Drama Series ever. It was a huge achievement for Masterpiece Theatre, which had aired the first Churchills less than one year before. Uh, How aware were you of the U.S. broadcast of Elizabeth R. on Masterpiece Theatre back in 1972? I wasn't at all aware. Um, It was, I mean, it was shown around the world, mostly in public broadcasting services. I remember one check I got, I think it was from Nigeria, for nine pence. Um, Yeah, well, that was, you know, fair dues, public broadcasting. Of course, not all the shows that aired on Masterpiece Theatre were breakout hits. And it took a little while for the series to develop a real rhythm. But then something came along that would definitively put Masterpiece Theatre and costume drama on the map. Upstairs, downstairs. And yet, it almost didn't air on Masterpiece Theatre. As soon as I saw Upstairs, Downstairs, I knew that that would um, be good on uh, commercial television. Commercial TV, not public TV. Sarson liked it and thought it was a classy soap opera, but not a literary Masterpiece Theatre kind of show. But Mobile's Herb Schmertz disagreed. Schmertz, from the Masterpiece Theatre point of view, quite rightly wanted it on Masterpiece Theatre. Eventually, Sarson and his team made the decision. Upstairs, Downstairs would air on Masterpiece Theatre, and not some other network. Anyway, we did run it, and uh, 
it worked well. Well, uh, Mrs. Pratt's agency sent me. Well? I've come about the position. House parlourmaid, was it? And a house parlourmaid. I am the house parlourmaid. Well, come in. Upstairs, Downstairs was a sensation. It was nominated for 16 Emmy Awards and won seven. And it's still one of the highest-rated Masterpiece Theatre programs ever. It also changed television. Upstairs, Downstairs was really the first television show to spotlight ensemble acting, um, which is a really democratic way of approaching characterization. Everybody gets their turn in the spotlight. Everybody gets their story told. There's no star of the series. You can find elements of Upstairs, Downstairs in so many shows that came after. Dramas like Rich Man, Poor Man, and even Dallas. It also combined... Soap opera with serious drama gave every character his or her turn in the spotlight and employed loads of melodrama. Also inspired by Upstairs, Downstairs, Roots. The second serialized drama that was produced in America was Roots. And to my astonishment, surprise, and delight, the publicist for Roots said we would never have had the courage to put this show on except the Masterpiece Theatre had shown us that there was an audience for serialized drama. Masterpiece Theatre was slowly, routinely helping to change American television for the better, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And Upstairs Downstairs changed Masterpiece Theatre itself. It was the first Masterpiece Theatre program that was created specifically for television. It didn't have any claims to literature or theatre or film. And it was the first masterpiece produced by ITV and not the BBC. It expanded what Masterpiece Theatre was and the kinds of programs it aired. So what Upstairs Downstairs did was it conveyed to Americans that watching British drama didn't have to feel like homework. It could be fun. It could be naughty. It could be sexy. And producers and writers were taking a risk. Even more, it made Masterpiece Theater appointment television. This was something you had to tune into every Sunday for fear of missing out. And that was by design. Schmertz told an interviewer once, I don't care whether anybody watches the shows. I want them to feel socially pressured so they have to lie and say they watch the shows. My memory of of the success of Masterpiece Theatre in those years, the 70s into the 80s, was the number of people who would say, no, I can't come for dinner on Sunday night. I have to stay home to watch Masterpiece. Or don't call me, but I'm going to be watching Masterpiece. Or do you want to come over and we'll watch Masterpiece together? It was one of the things that put public television on the map, Sesame Street, of course, but this is prime time. This is a prime time national series that millions and millions of people were watching. By 1973, Masterpiece Theater was on the up and up. Christopher Sarson, however, was on the way out. Sarson had launched both Masterpiece Theater and the children's program Zoom. He was completely burnt out. I was really, really sorry to go. I mean, I was so happy there and lots and lots of friends. And it was an incredible atmosphere in WGBH. It was just so breathtakingly exhilarating. 
It was not a place you wanted to leave, except for exhaustion. So WGBH producer Joan Wilson was anointed his successor, working closely with Henry Becton, by now a WGBH vice president, to shape the future of Masterpiece Theatre. Joan went on to be a wonderful executive producer for that series. Here's my favorite Wilson story. In 1976, acclaimed British actor Jeremy Brett was unable to obtain a green card in order to come to WGBH to film a new series. Wilson suggested that she and Brett just get married as a way to solve the visa problem, which it did a year later. But they actually ended up falling in love. What started as a marriage of convenience uh, just to get a working permit turned into a real marriage. Wilson was funny and sharp, and she drove a black 1987 Mustang with a license plate that read, Witch. When asked by a Boston Globe interviewer how it was that, quote, a woman who takes her tea with milk is married to an Englishman and makes her living by importing British programs happens to drive such a car, Wilson said glibly, I believe in supporting the American economy. Unfortunately, we don't have much actual interview tape of Wilson, but I do want to give you a chance to hear her voice. So here she is, introducing a filmed WGBH presentation of William Shakespeare's Macbeth, speaking appropriately about witches. Shakespeare's use of witches would have appealed to King James. He was fascinated, if not obsessed, by sorcery and wrote a book called Demonology, defending belief in witches and their power to do harm. Wilson liked to take risks, and as Masterpiece Theater's executive producer, too. Sometimes she chose programs that were quite edgy, or even pushed the boundaries of taste, like I, Claudius. It was clever, it was amusing, uh, and it was also highly dramatic. This is Sir Derek Jacobi. I am an actor and have been an actor for the last 60 years. So Derek Jacobi has been an actor even longer than Masterpiece Theatre has been around. He's an absolute legend. Some would say distinguished. I, th- I suppose the moment I got a, a letter from the Prime Minister um, saying I was up for a knighthood, I thought, oh, well, this, this is distinguished. But back in the 70s, when the Brits were trying to find the right person to play Emperor Claudius in I, Claudius, Jacobi was pretty far from distinguished. I I was not the first choice for Claudius. Um, It came my way after a series of actors, I think, had been approached um, and decided not to do it or couldn't do it. And uh, in order to um, secure the part, Um, I was taken out by the director and the producer to meet um, uh, the gentleman from London Films. London Films was an American company, but he'd owned the rights to I, Claudius. And they, of course, didn't know me from a hole in the ground. So I went out to lunch, and um, I think that was the best bit of acting I ever did, because at the end of the lunch, he said, well, we don't really know who you are, Um, but uh, we'll take a chance on you, and uh, you can play Claudius. After it aired in the UK, I, Claudius made its way to Masterpiece Theatre. 
It wasn't necessarily the most obvious new selection for the still young anthology series. It was gory and violent, and it had the robes and wigs of a first Churchill's. Here's Soraya Nadia McDonald again. On its face, you're just like, why would I watch this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, why in the world would you want to sort of travel back to, you know, this age of antiquity? There was no guarantee American audiences would want to spend their Sunday nights watching gruesome depictions of the sex-crazed, drunk, and fiendishly violent early emperors of ancient Rome. In a sense, yes, it was full of sex and violence. We didn't quite know how that would go down. And Joan and I had many discussions about what we might have to temper in order for it to pass muster with American audiences. Uh, and she was uh, very willing to take risks on things like that. Wilson did end up cutting some of the most violent bits from the broadcast. But even with those edits, I, Claudius still didn't sit right with all of Masterpiece Theater's viewers. A couple of people, I think, cut up their mobile credit cards and said, this is revolting, this is disgusting, what is Masterpiece Theater doing? But most people thought, wow, oh my god. I, Claudius actually expanded the boundaries of what television could and should look like. This is when television, you know, got sophisticated and when it stopped condescending to audiences and thought, you know, they can handle a bit of sex and it'll be just fine. I, yes, I do think it was a forerunner of all that. It, it sort of made sex and violence acceptable. If you think now about, like, Game of Thrones, like, I feel like you can make an argument that a show like I, Claudius, um, where you have, you know, crazy back Caligula um, <laughs> kind of like sets us up for that like decades before. And this is coming out in what, like the 1970s? <laughs> it's, it's kind of shocking to think about now. You have to remember this Game of Thrones-esque predecessor aired on PBS on Masterpiece Theater, the home of pomp and circumstance and refined British manners. But I, Claudius, still did really well for Masterpiece and for Sir Derek Jacobi. Within two years of Claudius being shown, um, I was uh, starring on Broadway, which would never have happened without, without Claudius. Every actor hopes for a peak in their career. Some have many peaks. Some have the Himalayas during their career. Others have a single mountain. Um, I've had a couple, I think, in my career, but Claudius was certainly, for me, the cultural and uh, career mountain, yes. Masterpiece Theatre could be many things to many different viewers. It could be a grand family soap opera. It could be a literary education. It could be sexy. It could be groundbreaking. It was now even at a point where it could actually make an actor's career. And Joan Wilson was there leading the charge. She also understood the audience and understood that even if she didn't particularly love something, it was going to be uh, something the audience would really go for. Something like Poldark, starring Robin Ellis. I remember walking into the screening room and Joan was standing up watching an episode of Poldark and she said, 
I hate it, Henry. I can't even watch it sitting down. I have to stand up or I'm going to fall asleep. But it'll sell, Harry. <laughs> so she knew that it would be popular. And Poldark was popular, extremely so. We had our young children at the time, and so our friends were having children. And there were several boys named Ross after Ross Poldark. I always think, poor people, they're innocent. There they were, very young. They <laughs> didn't know the series. I, I often wonder how they feel about being named Ross. Thanks to Poldark, Ellis gets to look at a lot of pictures of babies and dogs and cats named Ross. But being in the show changed his life in more significant ways, too. I'd done 50 televisions before I did Poldark. Uh, indeed, I'd, I'd done about four or five costume dramas. But really, Poldark, this, this uh, phrase put me on the map in the UK in, in, in terms of people just knew me from Poldark. Oh, yes, he's Poldark. I mean, if I hadn't done Poldark, then the casting people in America would not really have had anything, any reference for me. Um, so it did affect me, yeah. I mean, it's affected me that f- ever since I started that morning in Cornwall. I mean, it's been a part of my life, and uh, it's been a, a huge gift. From critical acclaim with Upstairs, Downstairs to edgy political drama with I, Claudius, Masterpiece Theatre was making a name for itself as a home for prestige drama on American television. And as Masterpiece Theatre's success expanded, so too did Mobile's investment in public television. And so by the early 1980s, Mobile had a reputation for being the most respected oil company in the world, I think partly due to its sponsorship of Masterpiece Theatre. Schmertz called up Henry Becton in 1979 and said, hey, how about if we sponsor another show, right? Which is every producer's dream. Herb called me and he said, you know, we've been airing some mystery series uh, within Masterpiece. And there's a lot more of those, Henry. Why don't, would you be interested in having uh, a separate series uh, that was just British uh, whodunits? Because if so, we'll fund you for that. And I thought, wow, uh, this is too good to be true. But Schmertz wasn't kidding. And in 1980, Mystery debuted on PBS Nationwide, bringing the very best of British crime drama to American screens. The Mystery theme song played alongside animated visuals inspired by the eccentric artist and author Edward Gorey. There's this damsel and she loses her scarf and she does this very dramatic sort of... The theme became an instant classic. It's the kind of song you'd find yourself humming while doing the dishes or showering. You're like, what is this? <laughs> or at least that's, you know, I was like, what is this? Um, I'm, I'm intrigued. And just like on Masterpiece Theater, mystery programs also featured host introductions. Good evening, I'm Vincent Price, and I am delighted to be your host for the second season of Mystery. Tonight, we now, begin... we're cheating here. The first host of Mystery was not Vincent Price, the creepy, cool icon of horror films and Michael Jackson's thriller. The first host was Today Show critic Gene Shalit, but it was Price who helped Mystery take off. He was done up in a dinner jacket in this crumbling mansion full of junk, and it just sort of made you smile even before the programs began. Uh, and the programs were... Gentle murders. Gentle murders. 
none of the gruesome violence of I, Claudius. No, the detective whodunits of mystery were thoughtful, very English murder mysteries, featuring Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, John Mortimer's Rumpel of the Bailey, and G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown. And then the thing that became immediately, like, appealing about it, like, once you've watched, like, two or three episodes is that, oh, there's a formula, which can feel very comfortable, I think, in a way. How many detective series do you think that Mystery and Masterpiece have aired overall? Oh, God, I don't know. (laughs) A lot. (laughs) Many, yes. Between 1980 and 2006, Mystery showed more than 80 different little crime shows. Like its sister program, Masterpiece Theatre, Mystery underlined the familiar otherness of the British experience for an American audience. And the shows did it really well. Much of that success came down to Wilson. So imagine being a woman in the 1970s um, and taking on this role. And she did it with guts and bravado. And then she got pancreatic cancer and, you know, the worst kind. Wilson passed away in July 1985. And even though television was still mostly a man's domain, Becton who at this point had become the president of WGBH, wisely tapped a woman to replace Wilson, Rebecca Eaton. I've always thought that the reason Henry hired me was because my mother was an actress and he knew I knew drama kind of deeply. Her mother had been an actress, a Broadway actress. Uh, So she had a theater background. Her father had taught English literature and Shakespeare in high school. And I knew she had studied English literature at Vassar. Eaton had been working at WGBH in a variety of roles for years, but she didn't realize that Becton, one of her mentors, had been eyeing her for the executive producer role at Masterpiece Theater. Even Becton admits that it wasn't an obvious move. Now, it was a bit of a risk because she had never actually produced any drama or curated any drama showcase in her television career so far. Uh, And in fact, um, I think the people at Mobile were quite skeptical uh, that this was the right choice. Despite Mobile's concerns, Becton hired Eaton. The day I was offered a job, it will live in my mind forever because um, it went like this. Uh, I was newly married, decided it was time to start a family. I went to work. It was five o'clock. I was about to leave to get my jacket and go out to the car. And Paul was picking me up. Phone rang. And it was the doctor's office saying, Rebecca, we have good news. You're pregnant. I said, that's wonderful. I went out, told Paul, sitting in the car. He was stunned, thrilled. I said, oh, forgot my jacket. Went back in to get my jacket. The phone rang again. I picked it up. It was Henry Becton saying, Rebecca, I'd like to offer you the job of executive producer of Masterpiece. I said, Henry, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant. And Henry paused for a nanosecond. He said, we'll figure it out. He was great. So I went out to the car again. There's Paul kind of staring into space as his future has just completely changed. And I said, guess what? Henry Becton just called and offered me the job of executive producer masterpiece. And 
His jaw dropped even more than the first time because our whole life had changed. And I said, oh, shoot, I forgot my jacket. I've got to go. And he literally grabbed the door so I couldn't get out. And he said, don't go back in there. Eaton became executive producer of Masterpiece Theater when the series was at its height of success and popularity, and she felt the pressure of keeping it there. And then it became an incredibly steep learning curve because there I was, an older mother, pregnant, first child, sick every day of the pregnancy, as many women will sympathize with, and learning this whole new ballgame. Wilson, a popular and well-liked executive, married to a leading British actor, was a tough act to follow. With piles of scripts and stacks of tape on her desk, Eaton had to quickly decide what kinds of British programming she wanted to fill her twice-weekly slots on PBS. My first decision that I remember that I absolutely knew we should do this was Morse. Inspector Morse, an adaptation of the Colin Dexter novels, was an unlikely fit for mystery. It wasn't a gentle murder like your typical mystery program. It was darker, grittier. It even dealt with complex social issues like racism and teen suicide. Some people swear that it is the best detective-based crime drama ever produced. um, And if you go to ratings of crime dramas that are British, it often appears as number one. Yeah, it was enormously popular um, with the public and also with critics, and justifiably so. Inspector Morse aired for 13 seasons and later inspired two different spin-off series based on the same characters, Lewis and Endeavor, which also aired on Masterpiece or Mystery. In all, nearly 160 hours of programming extend from this first major Eaton decision. So yes, you could call it an early success. I think the lesson I got from from buying Morris was when I have that feeling, when something seems really simple and right, just go for it. Don't question it. Just go for it. And I tend to be very, very uh, careful uh, about what we go for in Masterpiece. And it is rare that I have one of those 100% feelings, this is right. I know we have to have this. It's rare. And Eaton had much to be proud of from a series inspired by an unexpected British soap opera sensation to a popular cultural touchstone all its own, Masterpiece Theatre was thriving as the 1980s soldiered on. There is a poster that Mobile had made, which I actually have uh, in my house, which is of a taxi driver and a lady with two bags trying to get in the taxi. And the taxi driver is saying, sorry, lady, it's nine o'clock. Masterpiece Theatre is on which I thought was wonderful, because that's everybody. Perhaps most fittingly, many who remember that Masterpiece Theater predecessor, the Foresight Saga, more than 50 years ago, still wrongly assume it aired as the first Masterpiece Theater series. Even Wikipedia says as much. Still, to this day, there are lots of oldies who think that the Foresight Saga was the first Masterpiece Theater. It was not. The mimic had become the master. And public television's groundbreaking idea for a certain kind of Sunday evening drama was a certified hit. My job was actually just to choose among just a a plethora of great British shows. There wasn't any competition. There was no question about money. We weren't having to ask PBS for money. 
It looked at the beginning like kind of an easy, fun job. Then things, as they do, got complicated. We'll explore those complications of broadcast rivals, financial limits, and programming dry spells, oh my, in the next episode of Making Masterpiece. Making Masterpiece is produced by Nick Anderson. Rachel Aronoff is our story editor. Alicia Etup is our sound editor. Sound designed by Jacob Lewis of Great Feeling Studios. The executive producer of Masterpiece is Suzanne Simpson. I'm Jay Slaycob. Thanks for listening. You can hear the next two episodes of Making Masterpiece, including interviews with Hugh Bonneville, Lily Collins, Charles Dance, and many more at pbs.org slash makingmasterpiece or on the Masterpiece Studio podcast feed wherever you listen to podcasts.